Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Good evening, and welcome to The Hinkley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinkley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Glenn Mills, anchor and senior political correspondent with ABC4 Utah, Lindsay Whitehurst, reporter with the Associated Press, and Robert Gerke, news columnist with the Salt Lake Tribune. Thank you all for being with us. It's been an exciting week in politics. Of course, I like all, this, all things politics, but Lindsay, let's start with you talking about something that just happened in the state of Utah. The vice presidential debate was here. 65 plus million people were watching this. Talk about the stakes of this as these two candidates uh, went on stage. The stakes were higher than is typical for a vice presidential debate, I would say. Um, usually those are, you know, by nature, kind of second tier things, right? But, um, but this time around, I think it was even more closely watched than normal because among other things, there was the first presidential debate where I think a lot of people didn't feel like they got a firm yeah. grasp of the issues, to say the least. <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit of a free-for-all at times. And, and I, think both, I think they were really looking towards these two candidates to, to kind of have a little more substantive back and forth. And, and I, would, I would say that happened. And, and of course, the future of the next two presidential debates is, is very much in doubt right now, too. So it's, it's possible we, we may not see the candidates for the highest offices in in our country, um, you know, have an exchange again, and so so I think there was there was that kind of element that was happening too. Uh -huh. I think there was also, I mean, you have the, you have the fact that Donald Trump is 74, Joe Biden 77. These two candidates actually matter right now because whoever wins is going to be the oldest president in the United States history and older than Ronald Reagan by the time they finish their term. And so it's, it, you know, that could matter eventually sometime in the next four years. I think a lot of people are looking for reassurances because there are there are these rumors about Joe Biden's mental acuity. There's these ru rumors about Donald Trump's, you know, uh, bombastic nature. They they feel like there, there maybe needs to be somebody sort of as the bulwark behind the, the, the person behind the person. Mm -hmm. And I think so I think that's a little bit more important than in years past too. It could also uh, be a preview of the 2024 presidential race, right? Because regardless who wins, you know, Trump isn't gonna run for another term presumably. Joe Biden likely will only serve one term. And so these two would be front runners, I think, for the 2024 presidential campaign. So I think there was a little bit of, uh, of that going on as well. So Glenn, and because, uh, those, and because of those two reasons, Jason, I was going to say I'm surprised this wasn't the highest rated vice presidential debate of all time. It came in second, from my understanding, uh, back in 2008 with Sarah Palin and uh, Joe Biden at the time. So I really was expecting even more people to tune into this, which uh, could be a sign of participation coming up in this presidential election as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Glenn, Lindsay was talking just a moment ago about how the first presidential debate, maybe we didn't <laughs> get to too many of the substantive topics. There was something else. Did, did these two candidates deliver on the interest of Utah voters and those in the country on actually getting to a game plan from these candidates? Well, there was definitely some non-answer answering going on, but there is no doubt about it that people were able to see more substance and get an idea for where these potential administrations stand on issues than we saw last Tuesday. I don't think there are very many people at all that would stop short of calling what we saw last week a disaster. And because of that, when you talk about the next two uh, being in jeopardy, 
well, a lot of people are saying, if it's going to be like last week, why do we need to go through that again anyway? Mm -hmm. so, so, Robert, uh, the, the stakes for a VP debate, uh, what is the goal of these candidates? And I guess in your mind, because you had such a great column this week, what are they really trying to accomplish and how does one declare victory? Well, I think the most important thing for any of these candidates is, you know, sort of like the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. You, you, you don't want to damage your candidate's chances by making a gaffe or making a mistake or saying something that becomes controversial. And I think they both clearly did a, 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 even a better job, like Glenn said, uh, than their than the top of the ticket uh, in in representing themselves and representing their policies, I think I think for Senator Harris, she did a good job of being the prosecutor. That's her background. I think she really went after the the president's record and and put. Pence on the defensive, especially early on, especially on uh, the coronavirus response. Um, for Pence, I think he had to kind of pivot away from that, and I think he did. I think they moved into some of the issues. He, he tried to go early to the Supreme Court nomination. He um, talked about, you know, uh, abortion. He tried to pin her to that. He talked about civil unrest, and those are the issues that I think he wanted to talk about. And I think they both did a pretty good job of, of moving to their issues. Vice President Pence, it seemed like, especially in the first half of the debate, would just kind of blow right past the end of his time, and I think Susan Page, uh, as the debate went on, did a better and better job of kind of keeping them focused on that. But, I, you know, I think, by and large, both of them did what they needed to do. Um, I think both sides ended up, of course, declaring victory. Um, at the end of the day, you know, as we said at the beginning, these don't generally influence the race that much. Mm -hmm. um, the only way you can really influence it, I think, is downward. Influence your, your candidate is downward. And so I think neither of them did damage. I don't know that they necessarily convinced a whole lot of people one way or another, but I think it was a, it was a quality debate. Yeah, so Lindsay, I'm curious about the people who are converted on from, from this debate, because uh, a thread that all of you had here was this, is you have on the Democratic side who would be the, Joe Biden would be the oldest president elected. You got health concerns and otherwise with the current president. How many people that you're talking to in Utah looked at this debate and said, I may not feel great about the person at the top. Maybe I can sleep tonight if I vote for one of them because I'm getting this number two candidate. Well, and that's another reason why this is this is an interesting matchup. Was an interesting matchup. I think, in some ways, they have they have a little different roles, right? I think um, Harris is seen as perhaps bringing, um, you know, kind of being an up and comer and perhaps bringing some some energy to it to a ticket that I think there are some on the Democratic side that that perhaps Biden was not their number one choice. And I think that that was one that's one thing that she brings to that ticket is is a little she's a little bit younger, she's a little bit um, and she's a historic candidate in a lot of ways, right? Um, and Whereas I think Pence, on the other hand, is kind of seen as as tempering Donald Trump a little bit, some of his more um, kind of bombastic impulses. And I think that people in Utah in particular, not exclusively, but I think people in Utah really appreciate that about Pence. And um, and so I think that those, their roles are a little bit different in what they bring to the ticket, but they both sort of balance out their candidates that way. And um, and I do think that there'll be there'll be some people who, who maybe aren't super enthused about the guy at the top of the ticket, but but do get really interested about um, about the person who's who's their running yeah. mate. So and, and Pence was brought onto the ticket too to help uh, Donald Trump with the Christian conservative wing, which mm -hmm. yeah. uh, which is vital to uh, President Trump's reelection bid. Um, I think he and I think you saw him right, reaching out to that crowd again on the Supreme Court on abortion issues, mm -hmm. things like that. And I think uh, you know he he that's his background, uh, talk radio host, so he's very articulate and sort of can make his points quickly. And I think he he did a good job of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one thing I hear from a fair number of Utah voters um, is kind of what what happened to the civility piece of it, you know. And I, I think that's one thing that that 
Pence brings, you know, he has the, the conservative positions that, that a lot of people in, in Utah identify with, um, but he doesn't he doesn't bring that same sort of pugilistic kind of spirit uh, that Donald Trump does, that, that there are certainly voters in Utah that don't don't particularly appreciate that style. And I think for, for them, Pence can can indeed be um, be sort of a, a moderating influence that they can kind of see like, all right, he's 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 got the, the calm demeanor and stuff like that. And I would I would say that's something he, he definitely had on on showcase in the debate that that he was he was not ruffled. Yeah, and and yeah. I think that was that was, I, I would imagine, a, a goal for, for them. And I, I think that's that's something he pulled off. If you remember four years ago, uh, Vice President Pence, well, then nominee Pence came to Utah twice to campaign for in a state where, you know, he shouldn't really have to campaign that much. But I think that goes to what Lindsay was saying, is that he is sort of that emissary to the conservative uh, religious community, uh, especially the evangelical community, but also the LDS community, that it has historically had problems with Trump's personal behavior, his past record, you know, his, his record of, of personal peccadilloes, you can say. But um, so I think I think he served that purpose in the debate and, and he could kind of focus things on, on again, the abortion debate, religious liberty yeah. debate, the Supreme Court debate. All of those are important to that community that might be a little uneasy with President Trump just because, based on his uh, track record as a human being. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to get to some of those I issues. I think we've also seen a very interesting shift from 2016 as well, though, to add to what the two of you are saying. And there's this idea of, you know what, I don't look to the president for a moral uh, example. I look to the president for the policies that they're going to enact. And I think we're seeing a lot of people kind of come to terms with that and saying, I can separate the two. Because in Utah, we have some high profile examples of those that stood against Donald Trump in 2016 who are firmly and ardently behind him now. And that's one of the things the governor and I talked about after the debate on Wednesday night. And that's one of the things he said. He said, look, I'm able to separate the behavior from the policies that I do like and I can get behind. And I think we see that in a lot of Utahns. I, I think I've heard people try to make that argument, make that case and maybe convince themselves that's true. I think that's a rationalization of trying to, trying to, you know, come to terms with power. And, and you know, I, I, I've heard people say the same thing. I don't necessarily buy it. I think it's a, I think it's a cop out because they, you know, maybe opposed him before. You're, you're buying the whole package. You don't just get to choose, you know, it's, a, it's, not, a, it's not an a la carte menu. You don't get to choose his policies and not the person. It, it, it's, a, it's a package when you pick a president. Mm -hmm. But I do think that's one thing that sets Utah apart a little bit is, is there's a real, I think there's a real split among Republicans in Utah, whether they're, they're, they're totally cool with all of that. You know what I mean? Some, some folks have definitely gotten on board, like, like Glenn said, and others are just sort of like, eh, I don't, I don't know if I'm there yet. And I'm, I'm talking about both, mostly voters. Um, although, uh, though there are some leaders too, who are kind of quietly, mm. yeah, <laughs> absolutely right. There was a Y2 poll out this week that um, showed, I believe, that Trump had about 50% support to Biden's 40. That's a pretty close gap for Utah. And, and interesting, if you dig down into it, the LDS vote was, was men were more supportive of him by quite a large margin than women. So I think those, I think those character issues are still permeating this debate, yeah. or permeating this race. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. But if you take a look from 2016 to 2020, I think you are seeing a shift toward Donald Trump. Uh, if you do go by that 50% and I understand the dynamics were different 50% today or in 2020 in November would be more than he picked up in the state of Utah in 2016 mm -hmm. and I understand that Evan McMullen was there as an alternative for the president in 2016 and he picked up a large number of that vote but just go back to Super Tuesday 
there were alternatives on the ballot in the state of Utah, and President Trump got 88% of the Republican vote. That's, to me, an indicator that more Republicans are getting behind the president in 2020 than we saw in 2016 when it comes to the state of Utah. I want to get to some of those issues that are going to enhance one of these candidates in the minds of the voters. But but before we leave that, Lindsay, um, you, you mentioned already, we, we don't know what number two and number three debates might look like for the president. But interestingly enough, as soon as we finish this great debate at the University of Utah, which we're so glad to have it here, the, the Commission on Presidential Debates immediately said the next one is going to be virtual implications of that and maybe the fact that President Trump said, I'm not doing it. And, and I believe um, not too long after that, Biden kind of said, well, if he's not doing it, I'm not either. And that, that could all change again, <laughs> let's be honest. You never, there's one thing we know about 2020 <laughs> that you always gotta be ready for yeah. the next turn, right? Yeah. Um, a, a virtual debate could have been interesting. Um, it's, of course, we've all gotten a lot better with that technology, right? But it's, it's, still, it's still imperfect. And, and so, um, and, and who knows? I don't think you can cut off the mic live, but would they do that a little differently, it would have been a whole new world, just like all of us are doing more Zoom calls in our workplaces and stuff like that. It would have been a really interesting thing. And, and who knows, there's the possibility it could it could still happen, but it, it seems like it's very uh -huh. unlikely at this point. So it's happened once before, right? We had the 1960 version of a virtual debate, uh, right? This was Richard Nixon, John F. Kennedy, both this was by TV in two different places. That's the last time that happened. How much would it change the dy dynamic, Robert? Is it still an effective tool for voters. I mean, I think it is. I we, we see on TV news all the time where you have the three, the triptych, uh, you know, photo, yeah. you know, uh, feeds, and, and I don't think it necessarily undermines the ability to interact. I mean, there's some things you lose in body language and so forth, but um, I think when you have one of the candidates who's been infected with COVID and is supposed to be quarantining and may still be infected, you know, may be infectious, it makes sense. I mean, you, these are not, as we said before, these are not spring chickens. Uh, and it makes sense to be careful. And and so if, if, if it's virtual or nothing, then, th then that's your option. Um, I think Trump will come around because I think he needs the debate more than Biden does right now. He's trailing in the polls. He needs to change the, change the dynamic of the race. <clears throat> Excuse me, and he also needs to um, he needs to cut into the cut into the cut into the lead, and I think undo some of the damage he did in the first debate. So I think Trump will come around to basically acquiesce to whatever demands the Biden campaign makes. Mm -hmm. uh, Glenn, let's get into a couple of the issues that came up in the debate, because I believe these are going to be issues that will resonate throughout the rest of the election. The very first question out of the gate was about the country's response to COVID-19. How do these two yeah. candidates handle that particular issue? Well, Jason, that's something you and I talked about right before the debate on Wednesday. We knew that was going to come up, and we knew that Senator Harris was going to hit Pence hard on that. And she came out swinging, as you mentioned. She called this the greatest failure we've ever seen in a U.S. presidency administration. Uh, Pence responding to that by saying, well, President Trump took an immediate step at the beginning by banning travel to uh, China, and he pointed out that uh, Biden, Joe Biden, was opposed to that. So there was a big back and forth between that, and that really played a key role and got this debate off to a uh, start on Wednesday night. Yeah, so Lindsay, I'm curious about how this is playing with people you've interviewed, because this is the, the essence of the articles, right? Biggest failure of any administration in history, and the other side saying, you should have seen what it was going to be like. This was success because of the things we did. What plays better in the minds of Utahns that you've talked to? 
You know, a, a colleague of mine actually spoke with a voter right afterwards, mm -hmm. a, a student, and um, and he was saying that he was kind of leaning towards Trump, but he actually felt like, based on Harris's performance in the debate, and he was actually leaning towards the Democratic side a little bit more. So I think she was she was effective in 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 terms of laying out the. The, the huge issues we're, we're dealing with right now, and 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 I think that people people look around and they see things are not quite back to normal yet. We're still <laughs> we're still a very much much in flux, and so so I think there will be certainly people who identify with that. I think um, Pence. The other thing I thought was kind of interesting he did rhetorically is 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 say, well um, well you're pinning the failures on the American people, which of course you know Harris said she wasn't. She was talking about the presidency, but I thought that was sort of an interesting way to 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 change the the terms of the question just a little. It in in that in that debating uh, style, but that's that's going to be the number one thing I think on people's minds, just generally in their lives, and especially when they go to the voting booth. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, Robert, I want to get to this next issue, which I thought was so interesting. Um, we have a potential Supreme Court uh, nominee, uh, uh, but with Justice Barrett as a potential Supreme Court uh, pick. So this became a source of great contention during this debate, with with the Vice President going after. Senator Harris repeatedly saying, are you going to pack the court? That's what he kept asking. What does that mean? And maybe why did we get an answer? Well, I, that, that was an interesting point, and we saw it spill over a couple days you know, later when Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, was asked the same question, and he says, you'll know when, I, when, I'm, you know when I'm in office, which is not, I don't think, a satisfactory answer. Court packing is, is adding justices to the court. There's nothing in the Constitution that says we have to have nine justices. It started out, I believe, with five, and it was seven, and there were efforts in, in the FDR administration to go to 13. The idea being that Democrats feel like they got hoodwinked out of of these last two nominees, the Merrick Garland pick and this Amy Coney Barrett pick. And so they want to, they're talking about adding justices to the court to sort of rebalance the court because a 6-3 court is obviously not going to be good for Democrats for a long, long time. Um, and so, you know, they, they, Congress can do that. Um, it's a pretty controversial, it's a sort of brazen power play, right? Um, and so there, there are questions about whether Senator Harris and Vice President Biden support doing that if they're elected. Um, I think I think it's an idea that had some momentum earlier, but I think it's kind of been cooled a little bit. Although Chuck Schumer says nothing's off the table, um, they're they're being very cagey about answering that question. And I think because they don't want to alienate the left, who's you know very upset about the way the Supreme Court confirmations have transpired, but also don't want to be looking, they don't want people to think that they're, that it's a power grab, that they're going to come in and turn over all of the institutions uh, and, and just, to, just to grab power uh, from, away from the Republicans. And so they're going to try to dance around it. I don't think it's a good idea for them to do it. Uh, they need to put it to rest one way or another. And very likely, I think, it's an unpopular opinion. Uh, it's unpopular among voters, and I think they're going to distance themselves from that. Ultimately. So Glenn, let me ask you the question related to that. So here's the reality. It's, we've been at nine justices since 1869. It's been quite a while uh, since uh, anyone has tried to adjust it. FDR looked at it, and even the Democrats at the time were not in favor, as Robert just suggested. And before that, I think it was George Washington had us at six. I mean, it has not changed. So why is that the issue? And if Robert is right that this is just an issue they're going to try, they're using to keep both sides, um, really both sides of the Democratic Party together, why not just come out on this and let it go? Well, this is really an issue that's been boiling for several years now. I remember back in 2016, Jason, speaking with uh, Senator Hatch at the time when they 
the Republicans, the Senate Republicans refused to take up Merrick Garland's nomination. And I was talking to the Senate and I said, look, this is something, you know, the pendulum is going to swing eventually. And this is something that could come back to bite you. And he, he uh, acknowledged that. And we're starting to see that happen now. And to be honest with you, back when Merrick Garland was nominated, Senator Hatch and other Republicans really liked that pick. That was the best possible pick from a Democratic presidential uh, can, uh, president that Republicans could really get behind, and they chose not to take that up. And they will also point out that this fight started even before that with Harry Reid and the filibuster fight. So this is something that's really been going for a long time. And I agree with what Robert's saying. It's uh, something they should probably get out in front of, but there are political reasons as to why they're not. But Again, the pendulum is going to swing, and a lot of people see this as one of the signs of dysfunction in Washington and a fight that could go anywhere. We really don't know where it will go. Mm -hmm. How is this resonating with you, Tons? Because a couple of issues are in the balance if you have a conservative Supreme Court, issues like abortion, even like religious freedom, issues of immigration. These are all things that can be addressed by a change in the court. And in some ways, it's kind of a, a, a microcosm of, of the challenge facing the Democratic ticket, right? Where you want to, you don't want to alienate the left, but you don't want to go go too far the other way either. And um, and so, so I think. I, I do think what, what they've said so far isn't quite hitting home. Like, I, I, it's clear that this is going to be an issue. Like, you know, in that debate, Pence kind of almost put on a moderator hat and, like, insisted on, on, on Harris answering the question. And, um, and she let the conversation go on a little bit longer than, than I, I might have thought. Um, and and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that the, what they've, the, the balance they've hit so far is going to fully satisfy people. You know, I, I think that, that Robert's right. They're going to keep getting this question, and they're going to need to land on, on an answer that, that, that gives people a little bit better clue of, of what, we're, what we might even be talking about here. They, they may or may not have a distinct position, but I, I think they've got to frame it a little, a little bit better, because I'm not, I'm not sure it's hitting home with, with people just yet, what they've said so far. I think, I think some folks are, are feeling like it's, it's, it's not a not not enough of an answer for them yet. So, mm -hmm. uh, before I get into some local politics, I think we should set the stage with what I thought was a, the great last question of the debate, uh, because it, was, it came from a Utah student. Uh, Brecklin was her name, no last name we're giving, but uh, the winner of the essay contest in the state of Utah. I thought it was a nice way to bring the, the Utah perspective here. But the end part of her question, Robert, I think is interesting and it sets the stage for uh, local politics. She said, "If our leaders can't get along, how are the citizens?" supposed to get along? Yeah. Interesting question. It was a powerful question because I think if you look at the, the the polling, the voters, they're pretty disgusted with the way government's operating. They and and everybody's disgusted with the with the other side and it's it's dysfunctional and it's it's toxic right now. Um, in Washington to a lesser extent maybe at the state level or the the various states, but it's it's a profound question that she's asking, I think, because it really is the challenge going forward is if if we can't agree to even have discussions, how are we going to solve the problems? Um, and, and it gave them, I think they did a reasonably good job of modeling the kind of behavior that, you know, that we want to see from our elected leaders. But at the, but then we don't see that demonstrated when they, when people, when these elected leaders are back in Washington. So I think it was, I think it was a great question and a good challenge. I think they, I think they handled it the way you would expect it to. But Talk is cheap, and and the, their their actions that we've seen from both parties over the last 
several decades now don't ma don't match the the uh, the words that they're speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, we see this playing out a little bit, Glenn, in the fourth congressional district. I'm just so curious about your take on this. I'll tell you, it's been a long time since I've seen that many negative ads uh, on the airwaves. But we we did finally find this week that there there is a point where you can find a, a falsehood that you have to stop. What happened there? I'm curious. Yes. Yes, we sure did. There was a ad that was running. This was all based on attendance for Representative McAdams on a, the uh, China Commission. And it got to the point where they basically, those behind the ad were using videos from these commission meetings to uh, gauge attendance. And there was a point where, or so there were two different ads that were made. One was saying that he attended less than half of the meetings and one of them said that he attended half. So the one that was less than half, TV stations actually had to end up pulling that one in favor of the other one. So it did get to the point where, and, and I don't even remember a time in my journalism career where we actually had to pull an ad like that. So it definitely boiled over to that point where Representative Ben McAdams was able to prove that it was factually incorrect and those ads were pulled. Mm -hmm. Do these work, Lindsay? You're, you're interviewing so many people. Maybe Robert, you both of you can talk about this for just a moment. Do these kinds of negative ads work? You know, the fourth district has long been a really competitive district, right? And and it it is, again, one of the closer watched districts in the country. I think what's gonna be really interesting, McAdams was, of course, part of that 2018 blue wave that gave control of the House. He's a moderate guy, tends to focus on kitchen table type issues. And of course, his competitor, Bridges Owens, is he's a vocal Trump supporter. And and I think those are some interesting issues uh, to see, see whether those kinds of moderate Democratic gains, if they can keep those this year, right? Especially for, with somebody who who's very much, um, you know, a Trump supporter. And so so I think I think it'll be a really interesting race, and um, and I, I think for for voters, voters don't, to my mind, most of the voters I talk to, they don't follow every single turn of these things the way that we do, right? We're yeah. really interested in all of it. Voters, most of them, are not going to be on every single little turn in this, but I think. I think what what ends up happening is voters get feel a general sense of things. You know, it all kind of builds up to say like, well, I don't know about that. You yeah, know, and yeah. then they kind of get there and, and sort of vote on on their gut. So I think I think that's the 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 challenge for campaigns is like how how do we get enough out there that we we give people a sort of a, a general feeling about about things one way or the other. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? I do. And thank you for that. It's going to have to be the last comment. We're out of time. Thank you so much for your insights tonight. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of The Hinkley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.